My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Now, this intro you're hearing, normally I I do this after the podcast when I'm safely at home uh, and I can listen to it again and make sure I sound smart in the intro, but I don't actually have the luxury of that today because I'm currently in London on my honeymoon and me being me, I decided to fit in a podcast with someone I have been very much wanting to talk to for a very long time, a friend of mine named Will Kutzer. He is the founder and CEO of Stratum International, which is a headhunting and recruitment firm in the mining and minerals industry, but that really does not do it justice, what Will does. And in today's conversation, we're going to get into how mining companies can find the best and most capable staff members and leaders, um, what the industry is doing wrong in terms of looking for great people, and who actually makes a good mining engineer, who makes a good analyst, who are the people that should be running these companies. So without further ado, let me please introduce Will Kutzer, CEO of Stratum International. Well, Jamie, hi. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. So we are sitting in your beautiful London office and we're going to go have dinner after this, but I thought it'd be a great time to finally have a chance to sit down and get into what you do. Um, but for those of you, those at home who haven't actually heard of Stratum, can you give us the 30,000 foot view of what it is and how you got into this role? Yeah, of course. Uh, We're a 100% mining industry focused search advisory and consulting firm. Um, And even within the uh, specialism that we we occupy within mining, we decided to to take an even more uh, granular role within the industry by, I suppose in 2012 when we set this up, positioning ourselves against the market to, you know, rather than reactively fill roles um, rather proactively decide upfront the types of people that we engage with and that we place uh, in the industry and and irrespective of whether there's a role for them or not. Now again the 30,000 foot view of that is you know if you imagine an an org chart of a mining company uh, the the specialist uh, areas that we focus on very much the executives at headquarters but crucially also the site-based leaders, so the GM and their direct report, you know, the technical leaders on a mine site uh, and finance, commercial and HR, and project development leadership and the core four or five owners team members, and then VPX and exploration manager. And that's the entire company. So there's a common saying, I guess, in mining uh, that it's sort of a, a bet the jockey, not the horse. Mentality, and that's often applied in exploration and development stage companies. It's because so few people have the technical uh, or financial background that would be required to properly evaluate these projects. The mentality is, you know, bet the jockey, go with the winners, go with the great people, back the Ross BDs, etc., etc. But what I really kind of liked talking to you, and what I've been 
getting to learn more and more about is this idea that there's actually quite a quantitative approach to betting the jockey and to finding the right jockey. Um, and that's really what I want to talk about today, how you guys do that and what you're looking for. But before that, can we take a step back and chat a little bit about your background and how you actually got into this line of work and what led you here? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm a little, little known to me growing up in Pretoria in South Africa, which of course is mining central, um, you know, the, the platinum belt and all the gold mines around there. I, I was first introduced to mining um, probably in my early 20s, um, and, and not in the way you might think. I was actually dating one of the uh, Anglo-American executive's <laughs> daughters. That's probably um, the best way to be introduced to mining. Yes, yes. Sadly, I never got anything back, so that probably doesn't say much about my relationship that I got from them. But, um, but I, mean, I actually went down a platinum mine uh, for the first time in my early 20s uh, with a friend of mine who ran a safety equipment company, uh, mm-hmm. and it was just fascinating. Um, but my recruiting career actually started in, in construction. Uh, so it was always, I mean, I was, I was always interested in the adventure, and maybe that's why mining is such a natural fit. I mean, I recruited you know, during the Middle East construction boom by my first recruiting company when I was still in South Africa, well, I mean, 20 years ago now, recruited mainly engineers and technical people mm-hmm. and project people to essentially build Dubai and Qatar and Bahrain and uh, even some of the American companies who were doing the Iraq reconstruction project. So that was the first foray into recruiting. Um, came to London uh, for adventure, more than anything. Joined a big firm, stayed there for seven years. And midway through that, probably driven by, by uh, being homesick and getting free tickets to South Africa because there's lots of mining clients there, we, uh, <laughs> we started recruiting in the mining industry. And, and it became successful very quickly. And, and like, like all businesses, it's part timing and part good fortune and part skill. And I think this was no different. I mean, this was boom time in mining. Um, this was sort of mid, mid-2000s. Okay, so you're um, hitting the peak of the cycle. You're still working for a big firm at this yeah, point. Yeah, still working for a big firm. Was there for seven years. And I set up the mining desk at the time. Uh, and, and that grew. I mean, it, 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 we were already in an emerging markets team within this company that recruited technical and engineering globally, where the rest of a billion-dollar firm was... You know, in London for London, accounting for accounting in London. So, you know, people's candidate base tend to be a kilometer or two away from them, where we had this team of people that recruited in emerging markets in 20, 30, 40 different countries. So, did you say a billion dollar firm? It was, yeah. The recruiting firm? It was at the time. I mean, this is the, um, the old. So, you remember Monster.com, and I think they're still going. Yeah, yeah so, of course. So, Monster.com at the time, uh, they were. I can't recall if, the, if, if they were the parent or if the parent was TMP Worldwide, but this company went on a you know, multi-billion dollar acquisition spree and they ended up buying 60-odd companies. And this was the, you know, in hindsight, terrible decisions, but um, <laughs> it's probably similar to a lot of the mining companies and growing for growth's sake back in the day. Um, but yeah, they were just acquired hundreds of companies, well, what, 63 companies and thousands of people. And I mean, our, our office in London had I think, 900 people alone, you know, over five floors. So what so does that enormous. look like? Is that, is that, you know, a tower full of people sitting at cubicles making phone calls all day, like, like scouring the earth for engineers or accountants or yeah, exactly. bankers, I mean, whatever it is they're exactly. looking for? They were, they were discipline specialists, uh, of, of course, a lot of, the, uh, a lot of the teams, even though they might have rec- recruited many different types of people within finance or within banking yeah. or within legal or whatever. But we, we ran a little maverick team, you know. I mean, our average salary at the time recruiting was something like $200,000 and the firm's average was like $50,000, you know. So it was this, this, this little 
maverick team that was onboarded through acquisition through my former boss, who's sadly passed away some years ago. Um, and that was my first foray into resources recruiting. And when I, I came up with the idea, and I m- m- maybe the uh, the CEO of the CPCM in South Africa took some pity on me when I was young, and he, he gave us this mandate to uh, to do a succession plan for him, mm-hmm. um, and, and we won it. And and that really was the first step into substantial levels of networking within the global mining industry. And that really set me on the course then. I mean, I, I saw this opportunity in mining and, and uh, it, was, it was unopposed because it, it did very well and it started growing. And I mean, the firm in Australia, I wouldn't say they, they replicated because that sounds like hubris, but they, they started growing aggressively within yeah. the mining industry because the, the word mining didn't really exist in recruiting firms in the early 20, 2000s. It was all finance and tech and IT and... Um, and, and yeah, that's how it started, and I just fell in love with it. And in 2012, set up, set up Strata. So I do, I want to hear about that, but something I've always wondered, um, what do they, what qualifies someone to become a recruiter, and what do they teach you when you start? Because I've been recruited by a fair number of recruiters over the years, uh, and some have been highly professional and proficient and good to work with, and... Others have been on the other end of that spectrum. Yeah. What, like, working for a big firm like this, is there a training program or is it just a bunch of guys that know a lot of people and they're friendly and they're like good at putting things together? What's the, what's the system in place there in general in the industry when you were starting out? I think the larger firms, obviously, I mean, these are listed companies with, I think, you know, some are better than others, but there's, there's always ongoing training plans and training programs for, for people. But it, I think... And, and this is a really interesting point, and there's probably two podcasts just in this topic. But, um, you know, it, it tends to be trained, and I'm broad brushing here, but I'd still say 80% of search firms or recruiting firms are like that. I'm, not, I'm including everybody here, but of course not the tier one search firms or the boutique firms like ours, but in general. You know, they, they, they tend to be very reactive. They tend to be sales businesses, and I think that's the perception. You know, you're, you're taught predominantly to win the search, not to be a good candidate recruiter. I mean, that's, that's really at, at agency recruiting level, lower level recruiting. And, and I think, I mean, this is a, this is a big talking point. Um, you know, I see a lot of people complain, I hear a lot of people complain about getting crappy service from recruiters, but then I think it's important to, to, to understand the difference between good and bad in recruiters. And um, I mean, I, we can go into that uh, at a later stage, but I think one of the key things, so for example, you know, if you're an agency recruiter, and a lot of these people that complain about bad service and recruiting, I, mean, I, I turn that around slightly. So you know, you're, you're expecting, or you're dealing with a recruiter that you're not willing to retain, firstly. So you're probably giving them to two or three recruiting firms and saying, please race and go find me a candidate. And they advertise these jobs because they're not specialists. They're sort of sales specialists, or they might have some level of specialty. Um, so what you're creating here is a race. And, you know, if I find Bob CV on LinkedIn, um, you know, because I know how to type the word mining engineer and I happen to find a guy that replies to me and I think he's good because he's got the job title, uh, if I do that two minutes before the other guy, then I get the fee. Now, I think in contingency recruiting globally, the average is one in four or one in five of your mandates you actually place the person. Now, let's say it's one in four. Let's say you're one of the best recruiters in the world and it's one in three in that type of model. I mean, if you frame that differently, that means you work for free between the, well, the first eight months of the year, you work for free. Now, it doesn't strike me as a business of quality for the client experience because you're just racing other people to get a CV across the line. 
So my, I suppose my question and my challenge to clients is if they complain about recruiters that aren't very good, I'd like to challenge them to think about how they vetted that recruiter, you know, how they made sure that that was the right person. Have they just sent them a job spec and say, hey, go find me a GM who happens to run a $200 million mine and maybe I should have taken this a bit more seriously. Yeah. And, I, and I think this, you know, it, there's this level of complicitness in this that I don't think clients quite appreciate versus dealing with a specialized search firm that, I mean, firstly, I mean, I've got a list of questions that I'm happy to actually compile um, and perhaps people can dial, can, can email us and I can give them a sort of a do your recruiter DD uh, checklist if people are interested in that. Because, I mean, there are so many questions, really obvious questions that I would ask search firms. I would, you know, why would you advertise a job? Are, are you not a specialist? Uh, why would you work for free? Um, do you have intellectual property? Do you have the real depth? Or do you recruit the same people over or do you say yes to everything? I mean, there's so many questions that, that you would need to ask if you're a proper search firm. And like any other business in the world, you know, to have good infrastructure and good processing, good systems costs a fair degree of money. And good people, of course. And, you know, if you, if you compare that with agency recruiting, um, it's a completely different experience. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like very rarely are the search firm's incentives aligned with that of their clients, right? It, it sounds like to me that's what you're saying. If they're incentivized, if they're unlikely to have repeat customers or they're never going to be on retainer, then it's fill it as fast as you can before somebody else and move on to the next one. Throw it against the wall and hope it sticks. And... Uh, an enormous portion of the recruiting industry operates like this because, um, and I, <laughs> I'm probably talking our own book here, but you know I think I think they get paid very well for what they do because even they might charge thirty or fifty percent less than what a proper search firm would charge. But you know you get a lot of firms, um, and I'm not talking about the worst of the worst here. Of course, there are good firms in, in, in all parts of the industry, but you know I, I understand completely and completely agree with clients that get really annoyed when they pay eighty thousand, a hundred thousand bucks for someone who advertised a job and threw it at them and they happened to be successful. I get that. Why would you want to do that? Yeah. But why are you encouraging it yourself by engaging a firm like that in the first place? Versus, um, you know, and they usually would guarantee a candidate for, you know, say three months or so where a tier one search firm or a boutique like ours go for up to a year with a completely different process of de-risking the candidates and making them fit. So you're talking about two completely different businesses that... The perception is it's sort of kind of similar. And I think that's the challenge. And the one, as you can imagine, has almost zero barrier to entry, yeah. you know, to your original question. I mean, anyone, and this is the, the other problem, you know, that's why clients don't necessarily, many clients don't necessarily value this because their perception is because LinkedIn has half a billion names on it that anyone can be a recruiter, usually themselves included. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's the challenge. It's a, there's a zero barrier to entry. But then... You know, I think if you're smart enough and think about it, I mean, you deal with, with the good search firms and it's a very different experience. You know, it's a professional services firm versus a, a sales agency, so of course it's going to be priced differently. So what catalyzed you to sort of leave the bigger firm world and go out and start uh, Stratum by yourself? Um, well, I mean, I was the six-year-old kid selling newspapers and chocolates and, you know, trying to get the grannies to, you know, buy my magazine subscriptions and... <laughs> You know, um, so I, I think I was always naturally inclined to, to, to own a business or to just, just to, to be at the helm of something that I've created, however small. And, and also, I think it was 
quite a humbling experience coming to a city like London from South Africa, even after having a small little company and thinking you're very clever earning a few thousand dollars a placement and you know, do everything that I've just explained that you shouldn't be doing, doing because there was no barrier to entry. I'm 22 years old, so it was great. But, but I think it, was, it became very obvious to me that the reactive recruiting model, the generalist recruiting model, is like it, it, it works in some parts of, of the world and corners, but it's not something I wanted to be part of. I wanted to be part of a, a business that knows the right people, that, you know, that has a proper plan to find and help clients retain the right people uh, and reinvest endlessly to try and make that a reality for clients and, and through that hopefully build a business that, that has a reputation in the industry. And I'd, I'd like to think that's sort of what we're on our way to after it's now, what, our eighth year, I think, is Stratum. Yeah. So what is Strata's approach to going after clients, to finding people? Uh, how do you view your role in the sector and what are the strategies that you put in place to you know, not fall into that habit of being a sales-oriented business, but rather a professional services firm? Well, I, I think it comes back to the origins and the evolution of our model. I mean, we have invested... I, I was just looking through some figures the last couple of days in preparation for this. I reckon we invest 10 to 15% of our turnover every year in keeping data in check, you know, finding new professions to interview, irrespective of whether there's a job for them or not. You know, doing original research, uh, working with technology providers to, to try and get to the most industry contextual assessments, psychometric assessments that we, want to, that we are developing, co-developing and, and using in this industry. Uh, technology, IP that make it easier for clients to retain client, um, you know, professionals that they've hired. I think that's a difference. Um, you know, it's, it's a slightly different business to advertising a job and sending a CV. So is that a standard thing you see? Because when you started talking to me about this, I was kind of shocked, frankly, at the amount of work and thought um, and quantitative analysis that actually goes into this. Did you learn this from somebody else or did you sort of put the pieces together through trial and error? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think most of it comes down to... I mean, initially experience, but also just, you know, mentoring and, and wanting to be better and wanting clients to have a better experience. Because I'm on the other side of hearing a lot of this negative feedback, and I'm just on a mission, and our firm is on a mission to, it always has been, to just change the industry and just completely rewrite the way it's supposed to be done. And, you know, I think some of that we've done well, some where we've struggled as you grow and you evolve and you learn. But our overarching goal is to make the right people stick with the right companies through achieving the right culture fit. And that's quite a challenge in the industry. I mean, we've put people into more than 50, like five zero countries. Yeah. You know, juniors, mid-caps, majors, private equity funds, family offices. And, and all of these have different quirks. And I mean, one of the, you know, one of the things we've, or one of the things that we, I suppose, talk about is the, the three-dimensional um, uh, sort of nature of hiring, where, and, 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 and most companies, by the way, or 80% of everyone do stage one and two relatively well. You know, stage one is the, the appear to, i.e., I quite like you, I like the look of you, you know, we can do a barbecue together, we probably work well together. Yeah. Um, stage two is the can do, it's the CV, it's the references, and that's relatively easy to assess because it's kind of binary. Stage three, though, is the will do, i.e., if I'm in this culture, will I be able to do my job? Because 
I mean, you know, Pareto's law is very relevant here. You know, 80 odd percent of people join companies based on only being assessed on the first two levels, which is CV and references, and I like you, so let's work together. But 80% of people leave companies for the last part, i.e. I didn't fit or couldn't work with my manager. Or It's very rarely a purely skill-based reason that people leave a company. At this level, for yeah. sure. It's usually culture. So why aren't, why, you know, why aren't people assessing for that? And this is the question we asked ourselves. Um, because we didn't just come up with this idea when we found it smart. I mean, we're not that smart. But it took four years of self-question asking and figuring out why is our stick rate good and how can we make it 100%, which of course is impossible, but that's the quest. And it led us to the obvious conclusion that it's all about creating the right fit. And not just through our subjective assessment, because that's not possible. It, you've got to bring science into the process. And that's what led us onto this development um, of, of our talent assay uh, platform where we use behavioral profiling to, uh, to help achieve the match. So I want to talk about that in a minute. But, you know, just thinking about what you're saying, like mining seems to me to be like that it would be a particularly challenging industry to actually find this right fit. I mean, it's not like people are going to be working very often at the bank down the road from their house in the, in the same city. It's often remote, uh, sometimes dangerous, uh, highly challenging, highly stressful. You're away from your friends and family. You're sometimes flying into some godforsaken part of the world. Uh, this puts people in more extreme situations than they would typically yeah. see. How do you, and this probably ties into the behavioral assessment, but how do you start to control for those factors? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, I think as a collective, though, you know, people in the industry know, and, and even if they don't know, they get to know or they evolve into accepting these factors. Yeah. It's just in your DNA. So There's an element of self-selection, I suppose. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, some, some people go to sites, some don't, some love it, some don't, and it, 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 it just evolves from there. So I, I, think, I think from that perspective, people know what, what they're in for, right? So that, that part, you know, I almost put that down to the... Um, partially to the skill level again, because you learn these things as you go. I'm going to challenge you on this, because I've worked on a lot of sites, and you're right, there are some people that thrive in it, but probably 30% of people on any site are pretty much fucking miserable. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's alcohol problems, drug problems, prostitution, this is, you know, all these things are rampant in the mining industry. Yeah. And there's a lot of people that can make a lot of money working in mining that they wouldn't be able to make anywhere else, back at home in Melbourne or Toronto or Cape Town or what have you. Yep. How do you sort through those people? How do you find the ones that love being out there and are thriving in their element and the ones that are doing it because that's the only option at that point? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. I mean, not that this is answering the question initially, but... Um, so just coming into the defense of the mining industry as well, I think, I think some of the issues you describe is, is human nature issues, not mining issues, because it's consistent in construction, it's consistent in oil and gas. Anywhere where someone works remotely mm-hmm. and has a high stress, course, yeah. you know, overseas military, whatever it is. So I think, I think it's, a, it's a challenging human issue more than anything. But um, to your question on how do we, how do we find the right people, and it, it comes back to the point of what I tried to make earlier about choosing the search firm. So... 
you know, when we started this company, I mean, we nearly went bankrupt after two years because we were so obsessed with interviewing and finding the right candidates, even if there was no job for them, spending 45 minutes with them, interviewing them, referencing them, and then making them a passive candidate on our system. And this is what created our reputation because we weren't asking, we were giving. Right? It's very different to calling some guy you found on LinkedIn and say, hey, I've got a GM job for you. And they go, well, I've never had a GM job, or I'm a mine engineer, why are you calling me about a process engineer job? <coughs> so it's a completely different value proposition, and, and that's why our model has always been about farming and not fishing. You know, because it's about trying to the best of your ability to know in advance what good looks like, and ideally already having interviewed 200 of them, so you can do what I call take-away shortlisting, not advertise shortlisting, because then you can start thinking, and you have the bandwidth, because you're not racing someone to put some name onto a shortlist, or not even a shortlist, just send it to the client. You have the bandwidth to actually have a strategic level discussion with these people. You can think about how do you find out the best people, because you've, you've been doing your R&D for the last seven years consistently, over and above filling mandates. Um, you know, Compare that to a success-based recruiting firm that tends to just advertise and send CVs. It's all they do. Um, you know, of, of course, you'll, you start knowing things, you start learning things. But also, I mean, I meet, if you think about the breadth of people we speak to, Jamie, on a daily basis, and this is the unique insight, or the, maybe the unique angle a firm like ours have, and I think, I think this is one of the key benefits that we have that people never think about, is the level of access and the level of, you know, I mean, you, I think you, you know, I've sat down with Lucas Lundin, with Ross Beatty, with Rick Rule, I, I can call the CEO of most companies, and usually you'd get a response if you ask the right question. And if you think about the compound effect of interviewing six or 7,000 site-based leaders and HQ-based leaders, only in those 10 odd job titles, over seven years, keeping that updated to the best of our ability, filling mandates, speaking to family offices, private equity funds, banks, lawyers, all to do with who are the right people, you very quickly figure it out. Um, and, then, and then the key is tracking these people and hoping to God that they're free or they can be persuaded to join some role you have with one of your clients. Yeah. And that's, that's just slightly different, I'm hoping. Well, that <laughs> to bank the... of intellectual capital, essentially, Absolutely. that you're building up. Absolutely. You know, dealing with the top 20% of people, knowing who they are, and ideally you know, being able to put them into roles when they're available. And that's usually, I mean, often that's a 6, 12, 18-month conversation. It's not a, hey, I don't know you, here's a job. I know nothing about you, but are you interested? It's just different. Right? And I think that's, the, that's why it becomes more successful. Because, I mean, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day, right? So and I, 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 can, I consider, you know, throwing it against the wall, see what stick recruiting, a bit like that. And, you know, yeah, you're lucky quite, quite often. And the fees are big enough for you to remain lucky quite often. And the low barrier to entry and that recipe is just not a good model for building a proper business. So let's talk about psychometric testing. Yes. In preparation for this interview, <laughs> I uh, undertook the stratum psychometric test. Um, took me about 15 minutes or so, and did it on my laptop at home. Uh, you sent me back a report um, <laughs> summarizing my strengths and weaknesses and, and what have you and we'll talk a little bit about that specifically to me because I think it'll be interesting for people out there to hear how these things work uh, but generally what is a psychometric test how does it apply to the recruitment industry what are we looking at here yeah. I mean there are many 
probably hundreds of different types of psychometrics. I mean, when you go to any major company, they put you through psychometrics. And so, so there's many iterations of this, and I'm sure most people, most of your readers would have, sorry, most of your listeners would have, um, you know, experienced this in some way or another throughout their careers at some point. So, so I mean, that's, that, that's a relatively obvious thing. I think the, what I'd like to talk about is the, the exact application of it and the point of application of it. Because, so, and, and this, is, this is actually quite a good point about you know, what, what we believe you know, a good fit creates versus um, you know, perhaps others. So if you... Well, let me, let me caveat this. I mean, I don't think there are bad psychometric assessments. I just think it can be applied in different parts of the process and slightly different contexts. So for example, you go to a major mining company and they would do a psychometrics on you to see if you fit the company's culture, you know, like the company. Mm-hmm. Um, my, and I think that's great as a starting point, but the question I have on that, um, and to be very clear, that should be done, but the question I have on augmenting that is, well, these, com- com- these companies might operate in 20 or 10 countries. I mean, that's even the mid-cap, five mines in five countries right. with completely different cultures, with completely different types of challenges. So why would that be the only way you assess if someone fits the culture? What, does it matter even? So one of the things we're really passionate about and why we believe our assessments work so well is these are behavioral assessments that in its purest form match people to people, not people to companies. So if you think about that, if you're a GM or on a mine site, let's say you're a COO of an operating mining company and you're on the shortlist. So firstly... So when we, when we do a search, and I'll, I'll get to the psychometrics here, but assuming we've done the search, we've done the shortlisting, we've done the DD on the candidates, um, you know, we assess them psychometrically, uh, behaviorally, you know, behavioral assessment. Now, the difference is, I mean, we, we did yours, or, you know, you did yours in complete isolation, so the only context you get, albeit good context, is, you know, this is Jamie. Now, there's a whole separate layer of this when you do a search. So when we go to, or when we manage a search... Before we start the search, as part of our you know, first week of setting the whole thing up, we go to the four or five key stakeholders and influencers that, that, you, that the COO would be dealing with on a daily basis. The CEO, the VP tech services, the you know, whatever, VP HR. So both above and below them. Above, ideally. yeah. Above. Just above, not yeah, below? Just, just above. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, it could be anyone. I mean, it really could be anyone. But the reason we go above only is because we ask the question, what behaviours do you seek in this person? So it's a, it's a very similar questionnaire where you filled out, scientific questionnaire, but it's just very different, um, slightly different context. So if I were the CEO of a company and I was looking to hire my COO, you'd say, Jamie, what are you looking for in a COO? I'd fill it out and say, I want someone that is driven, highly analytical, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but you don't have the luxury of choosing those words. I mean, those words are reported to you based on some of the statements you choose, right? So this is the beauty about it. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't circumnavigate... What, what yeah. you really want. Now, a couple of really, really sort of magical things happen here. I mean, firstly, and I'm sure we've, you know, we, we've all been, all been part of these processes where, you know, the CEO might go, oh, you, you know what I want, you know, even to the board, you know, no, we know what we want when we see it. It's like, yeah, that's good and well, but, um, you know, the, the CEO might want, because of the nature of the company and their evolution and their, their part uh, or their, you know, where they are in, in their own growth, they might want a politician, a pacifier, someone that's a completely different profile to a CEO who wants a really super driven, aggressive, completely different behavioral profiles. They both might have studied in the same university. They both might have worked for the same companies in the past. They might have the exact same CV. 
all five for that matter. But just for totally you. different personalities. Completely different personalities. So do you find discrepancies often between what someone says they want and what someone and what their results of this testing show they actually want? All the time. And that's what I'm talking about, the magic. Because now if you think about, you know, what, what starts well is much more likely to end well in all walks of life. And frankly, most recruiting processes start really badly. So imagine you're a leadership team and you all go through this independently. So we report back to the four or five stakeholders and they can all see the other's result, which is really powerful because then there's a conversation that hasn't ever happened before uh, on, well, actually, do we really need this? And look, psychometrics and behavioral profiling doesn't give you the answer. It gives you the questions, right? So you go, okay, well, wh why, why do I really want this? And if, you know, and we facilitate these consultations with the companies if it's necessary. Like, I'd say three out of five are usually quite aligned because, I mean, usually it's, you know, the pioneering profile, the drive, 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 because people just want results, 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 results. Uh, so that's actually quite standard. Um, not that it's right necessarily, but it's quite standard. And then the question we ask is, well, why do you want this? Do you know what the downside is of having someone that's, you know, a crazy table thrower, for example. You know, they might not be the most diplomatic. They might not be the most, uh, might not have a great attention to detail. So what do you really need here? These are not things you can see on a CV. Um, and then once the leadership team have, uh, not, not, not even an agreement, a cognizance of each other's requirements, we then go to market, well, during, during our search process. So by the time a shortlist hits the client, you know, down from your 100 people down to your five, for example, you know, these candidates have been assessed behaviorally and then matched up to the behaviors that the client, you know, with our cons consulting and with our agreement, seek in these candidates. You know, that third third of the, of that we spoke about earlier, the actual, you know, will they do this job? Can they do it? Without a doubt, because they're mine engineers and it's a COO job and they've been GMs and they've, but will they do it? I.e., are the conditions right for them to do it you know is the company going to give them what they need to do it and that's usually a culture issue um, and I, it, was, it was Mike Tyson that said you know everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face <laughs> and, and I mean although that's maybe an extreme example I mean you know you, you, you said this earlier there are so many challenges in this industry so many things you have to get right you have to navigate you know from the politics to the location to the isolation to the you know, the challenge, the cycle, macroeconomics. I mean, it, it, this list is endless. The more senior you get, right, the more exposed you are to these risks. Um, so what's your version of that? Like, are you the right person for that exact recipe? Can you thrive in that very you, specific yeah. environment you're going to be thrown into? Exactly. And no one's CV can tell you that. I'm sorry, it just can't. Um, you know, you, you could do reference your... You know, so you're blue in the face, and of course you're going to get it right quite quite often. Like maybe even sixty or seventy percent of the times you get it right. But what if you can get it right ninety percent of the time, so, or ninety-five percent of the time? I mean, that's that's what we're trying to do here. Right? It's de-risk the process. We're all commodities that think for ourselves, which means we're unpredictable. This is not an exact science; it's impossible. But if you can de-risk it for a client to have a nine and a half out of ten hit rate versus a six out of ten hit rate after a year or two years in the job. I mean, that's millions and hundreds of millions of dollars of value, you know, at, at, at least protection, and, and then, of course, value enhancement and creation for the company. All right, so let's get specific. Let's, uh, let's discuss my results and see my uh, strengths and potential foibles as a mining engineer. I think it's, a, you know, it's an interesting... We talked a little bit about this prior to uh, recording, 
but it's it's an interesting time for me. Resource Insider, uh, our investment service has been going on for about a year and a half now. Prior to that, I was working in a management role in a mining company and had done so in various mining consultancies and in consulting firms for probably about 10 years. Um, so I'm in a different space than I had previously been. Um, and there are some opportunities and some challenges associated with that. And you saw some of that in the results, I guess, would be. Yeah, um, I mean, it, I think it would be good if uh, the listeners have much more color uh, around the, the types of profiles. And I mean, what, what I would say before we go here is, um, you know, if, if you want extensive information on this, we have a thought leadership section on our website, um, including a, an assessment um, description of what we offer, but through research. So we assessed over 150 mining operations leaders, VPs, COOs, GMs, from 150-odd companies globally, and we, we did a big piece on this, and it explains this process very well. So people can download that on our thought leadership page. But just to give a slight, slightly um, more context to this, so so there are four behavioral silos, so to speak, uh, each with its, with its polar extremes. So on the one side, you get dominant versus accepting. Uh, the second one is sociable versus analytical. The third is relaxed versus driving. And the fourth is compliant versus independent. So these are the, the, the four poles, so to speak. Um, so on your... Uh, oh, and also you have a, um, a situational chart and a real chart. And as I explained earlier, the real is, is the you. It's the day-to-day you. It's your actual behavioral profile. So that's the zone you kind of operate best in and prefer to yeah. behave in, yes? Yeah. yeah. And then you have the situational, which is the situation you're forced to exist in, essentially? Where you are in right now. You know, your, your, your situational is, um, is, is, is your, your current job. Now, yours you know, might, might be slightly, or slightly different, the context, to others, because we look at this in a more binary sense of, you know, you're a tech service manager, you're going for a tech service manager job. You're a GM, you're going for a GM or a COO job. So, you know, I think you made a massive switch. I mean, technical services <laughs> manager to mining blogger. <laughs> Slightly well, different. In, 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 a, in a way, yeah. you're, you're, you're still obviously perhaps even more of a technician right now, right? Because mm-hmm. of all the DD you need to do. But, um, but in the context of behavioral profiling, let's forget the skill part of this. And this is really an interesting point. You know, this is purely behavioral. So what we notice here, I mean, you, you're what, what we call a generalist profile. Now, that is one of the, the more sort of common driven type of profiles. So you, you tend to score highly on drive, reasonably balanced on social versus, uh, versus an analytical person, which is quite standard. Uh, I mean, a, a PhD, uh, you know, geo who, who sort of is asocial and don't want to see anyone ever except you know, sniff rocks and read papers will probably be an extreme analyst. And, and you know, most people high on the analytical aspect. High, very high, of course, uh, which, which by virtue of that probably make them very unsociable. Um, and I mean, sociable in the context of assessment is not drinking beers with your buddies. I mean, it's a behavioral trait, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the relaxed versus driving, I mean, most mining guys, as you can imagine, are super, lead, super dominant, super driven, super independent. You know, Which is where get. I fall in there. Yeah, well. and you, you probably fall, I'd say, in the 75th percentile. You're slightly more balanced than the sort of extreme mining guys out there. Uh, and that's your normal profile, uh, which probably gives us some interesting clues as to, you know, why you're doing what you're doing and why you decided to do what you do. Because, interestingly, your situational uh, profile at the moment shows a more extreme version of you, you know, more, more dominant, more sociable, 
um, more driven and definitely more independent. And it's such an interesting way to look at the world because, I mean, you can give me your self-assessment on this, but you're obviously doing something completely different to what you're doing now. And this is smart enough to pick it up. And so it's, uh, I guess it shows here like an overemphasis on the skill sets that I need to focus on in a, in a new venture, basically. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, if, if you were going for a, yeah, and this, this is why it's, it's, it's a slightly interesting example, but if, if you're a candidate sitting in front of me and you're on a shortlist and you've just done this for a similar role, you know, I would have asked you, you know, what's going on in your current role? Because it's slightly different to who you really are. And that's really good clues for us to figure out why people are talking to us in the first place and why they're looking to, to leave their roles. Now, you've already left and you've had to adapt your, you know, your, I wouldn't say necessarily your natural style, um, but your, you know, the style that you've developed over your career, your behavioral profile. Um, you've had to adapt that because you're now an independent, right? And you have to drive this new business venture and probably work every hour of the day and travel and, you know, your name's above the door. And, and that takes a different behavior than working for a company. That's just obvious, mm -hmm. right? But this detects it very quickly. So, and this just really helps. I mean, we, we're going into granular information now, but the overarching point here is you try and fit these results with what the company wants. And that is a major contributor to long-term success because the, the executives know what, what to expect and, and they know what they probably have to give concession on because they, they've co-created the behavioral profile and they've agreed it, so to speak. So it's just that... Yeah, it's just knowledge is power in this case. So that kind of leads me to my next question in so far that what are the characteristics of sort of highly effective leaders in this space? And I think, you know, from my perspective, the most important people in any mining company are the people running the operations, whether they're exploration or operations, et cetera, et cetera. It's the people on the ground who are actually doing the work. So let's think of it as someone the GM of a operating mining company or of an operating of an operating mine within a company. What who succeeds in that role, typically speaking? Well I think I mean perhaps I say this casually because we have access to this data and, and, and a lot of people in this uh, you know in, in their positions wouldn't have access to. But one of the things we see that you could potentially compare to your, your, your headquarter-based guys. It's just a track record, i.e. what have these guys done? Who have they mentored? Um, have they been in the trenches properly? Have they had successful careers at whatever the mandate was? I mean, even there's you know, 10 different options. I mean, uh, did they have to improve performance? Did they have to turn around an asset? Is it a steady-state production asset? There's so many different variables. But the overarching... The overarching you know, set of skills that make someone great, and that you know, you know, make make them outperform their peers pretty exponentially, is you know, as I said, trenches. They've have a track record. Um, they've they've got emotional intelligence, right? They're aware. You know, we're we're we're, in this, we're an industry of technicians, and and by virtue of being, you know, at a remote mine site, you, you know, you're you're not getting, you know, not necessarily by any fault of the company, but you're you're not getting access to sharpening up yourself commercially. You're not getting access to a lot of this and, and, or, or perhaps you're neglecting it yourself for your own self-development. But you know, I think a, a great GM is a business manager and I think a lot of people forget that. I mean, a 200,000 ounce mine, uh, you know, they, they probably at $1,500 $1, 
an ounce um, or a thousand dollar cost. They're making a few hundred million dollars a year in profit, free cash flow. Right? I mean, that's serious money, right? So it's a business management role. People forget that. And with business management comes you know, being strategic, influence, um, emotional intelligence, being open to mentoring, mentoring others. You know, the things that perhaps some people don't think about. Um, yes, it's a mine, but it's still run by people. And to get the best out of people, you you have to be one of these. I mean, if you think about, I mean, this is not a mining example, but I, I think I read once, um, you know, what, what's the difference between billionaires and millionaires? And, and, and you know, the tongue-in-cheek, but the only difference is billionaires know how to motivate millionaires. Um, and, and it's kind of the same thing. Like, how do you motivate really good people? And also, crucially, um, and, and this is, this is a, a paradox because it's very difficult to get right for mining companies, is... You know, how do you, it's almost self-sacrifice, because how do you make sure you hire the best people without being threatened by it? Because especially on Mindsight, you know, a lot of mediocre teams that develop over time have you know, a couple of things in common. The first one is, you know, someone gets in because they know someone and they, would have, they probably were good at some point somewhere and it might not quite be the same here because the challenges are different, but they're in. And... Now they're hiring, and they're going to be there for three, four, five years, and they don't intend to go anywhere because they're making three, four hundred thousand bucks a year, and they're not going anywhere. Um, now they're hiring a mine manager who they know, who they know cannot threaten them. Then they hire this person who can't threaten them. Then that person hires someone that can't threaten them. They're not interested in mentoring the locals, and it just creates this fiefdom of mediocrity. And we see this all the time on mine sites and all sizes of companies. So. You know, and it, it comes down to get the right person in that gets what business management is and can do it properly. And with that comes rigor and DD and the right process and the right, you know, skill set for sure, but also the right referencing, the right behavioral profiling and that. So, you know, good is a complex answer because good looks slightly different in all different scenarios. Well, then let me turn that on its head a little bit and say... What, what have you seen happen when companies get this wrong? What are you know, the consequences of putting the wrong person in a leadership role like this? <laughs> Prolonged pain. Because I think the news reaches you know, the top over a prolonged period of time by virtue of how remote a lot of these sites are. So, I mean, and that's why you get a snowball effect, right? Because... You know, it goes it, it goes south just fast enough not to notice, and then suddenly it implodes because two or three people leave at the same time. And I think you mentioned earlier something about a thirty percent churn. I think you mentioned that's actually very accurate. I mean, we, we did research on hundreds of people on at site based leadership roles a few years ago, and I think the churn is about twenty five percent at management level, which means at least one, if not two, of your top five or six leave every single year, and that's just normal. That's not even in a booming market. I'll probably double. So yeah, it becomes it becomes a challenge. So, you know, you, you know, if you want to, you want to, you know, fool yourself by quickly filling it with a, you know, a suboptimal candidate for the sake of either thinking you're a good recruiter or saving a few thousand dollars in a fee for a good recruiter, it's very likely to bite you on a long enough time frame. You do it enough times, it's very likely to bite you, and and it's it's long term pain because it costs a lot of money to hire and it costs even more to fail and equally yeah. much to 
you know, to fire and to get to just start the process again. Well, talking from a personal perspective, you know, I've recently invested in a company and was helping work with them, work with them through a few problems, and they were struggling on production and for a variety of reasons had to make some management changes. And as soon as that occurred, things turned around. One person was brought in. Uh, and one of the biggest qualities of this person, um, a lot of the companies we invest in, I give them a book, the same book. It's called uh, Measure What Matters. And it's written by a venture capitalist out of Silicon Valley. He worked with Google and his name is John Doerr and all sorts of other companies. And it's just about proper goal setting and making sure those goals are disseminated properly throughout the company. And this company was having a really hard time getting site-based management to actually measure uh, goals and implement them and set targets, et cetera, et cetera, just like standard things. And they replaced the person and th- it, it was like day and night. You know, they've hit their production targets month over month after over month from the day they changed it up. And it's just, it really came down to probably one or two people and that was it. Yeah, that's the difference between a successful operation and like a massive failure. Like Absolutely. And hundreds right of millions of dollars have been spent at this point. Exactly. So what are the demographics, I guess, that you're seeing in the mining industry today? Is it growing the workforce? Is it shrinking? Are we seeing different types of people come in than had previously or historically been the case? How is the workforce in this business evolving? Well, well, we have a lost generation, which is not news to anyone anyway. So, you know, the, the, the average sort of 30 to 50 year old is, is, you know, being a bit extreme, but it's sort of non-existent. So I mean, that's a generational issue. That's not going to be solved now. But I mean, the industry, some of the trends we're seeing at, at executive level um, is, and I, and I think probably more so in Vancouver and, and perhaps even in Toronto, is we, we've lost several executives uh, to, on shortlist to weed companies, for example. Now, now I think um, on, the C, in, on the CEO side, it, it, doesn't make, it doesn't surprise me that you know, crypto and weed have sucked some of these promoters up because it's the same model. Um, and it's probably good that these guys, some of these guys are out of the industry. But we're starting to see CFOs, you know, commercial people, leave the industry. So, I mean, look, these are, these are small examples, but it also points to challenges that was never before, yeah. you know, never before existed. And, and, and I think we're, you know, we're already into an uptick for several years, and the darkest times uh, is, is behind, uh, or are behind the industry. So I think there's a glorious opportunity for, for young people to enter the industry. And, and as the industry evolves over the next several years, you know, faster and faster towards technology, autonomy, uh, robotics. I think it's a compelling industry for uh, for the young pe- for young people to get into, and and that might save it right over time. Have you uh, seen, or do you see any changes in the twenty year olds, twenty five to thirty year olds coming to the space, or is that sort of below typically the level you guys tend to play? Yeah, it's, it's typically below. So I, I probably don't have a credible data backed mm-hmm. answer on that. So another question then that might be that I find interesting is women in the industry. Uh, I've worked for a lot of different companies. There is very often drives to get more women into the sector, particularly in technical roles. Uh, you know, in my own career, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of high-powered women, but many of them are in CFO, uh, investor relations, uh, some corporate development roles but less so in the technical site-based roles. Do you see this changing at all? Um, or you know, what, are the, what is your, your guys' experience showing you there? 
Yeah, I, mean, I think by, by virtue of working at site in operations, we probably have the misfortune of having access to the least number of women in this industry. Um, yeah. But I think at a, at a macro level, uh, and actually what, what would be really useful if people want to find out more about this and, and speak to some pretty incredible people is to contact women in mining and, and get some of their information and some of their reports uh, because it is very telling. But I think I read recently I think Bloomberg, on Bloomberg, I think women account for just under 16% of the global mining workforce which is up, well, 1%, so I'm assuming from, you know, from, from 15, um, which is more than 1%, of course, on aggregate. But um, it's not very much. So the needle is moving in the right direction, but it's at a glacial pace yeah. by the looks of it. Um, so I think at the moment, as we stand, one of the top 20 global mining companies have a woman CEO. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 an, it's an endless task of what has yeah. to be done. But it, it, it'll be interesting to see how the evolution of you know, what key skills are in mining in 20 years will influence the demographic? It's, it's an cha- almost impossible question to answer, uh, especially in the technical site-based or exploration roles. Yeah. Because for anyone working in those roles, what I've seen, your 30s are basically a lost decade. You're on site, you're in the field all the time. Very few men can make that work. Uh, most of the ones that I know who do make it work are divorced um, yeah. and you know, away from their friends and family 75% of the time. You know, women looking to start a family, that's challenging to the point of being almost impossible for most of them. So the leaders I have seen are the ones that do come through the, the finance route, typically when you are based in a city and you have more flexibility. I don't know if there's a way to change that. Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, and that's a question that has to be asked and, and addressed, but... I don't know if if, yeah. if anyone can at this point. Yeah. I, I think it's one of the unique challenges of the mining industry. Yeah. You have to be in the middle of nowhere for months at a time. Yeah. I mean, what, what might you know? What might save it is because of automation and robotics. You know, maybe the few that's left might be the only ones needed in twenty years because there's suddenly you know very few people needed on site. Um, maybe that's what'll save it. I mean, I hope that's not the case. I hope there's a more more um, creative and, and more more um, you know, successful solution to just hoping. But um, look, it's, it's an impossible question to answer. Yeah, who knows? So we're coming up on time now and we've got to go meet some people for dinner in a few minutes. But what I wanted to ask you is a lot of people at home who are listening to this are investors in the space. When they're looking at companies and they're reading the management portfolio profiles and they're trying to get an idea of who it is that are actually leading these, these companies, what do you think they should be asking? What should they be thinking about? Well, um, I think assuming, well, let's, let's very briefly split that into two. So a lot of these companies, I would assume, oh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would assume might be pre-production or development companies, you know, some of the more high-risk investors. So if you focus on those ones first, you're probably more interested in the, or you are more interested in the executive team. You're interested in the CEO and they're, you know, they're, we're stating the obvious here, but is the track record? You know, what have they actually done? Uh, who have they hired in the past? Uh, what have they done? And what's, you know, these, these, this is relatively, I mean, laborious, but it's public domain information, and especially with, you know, great, great uh, research that people like you do. It's, it, it's becoming reasonably accessible information if you ask the right people. So like any you know, good endeavor in life, if you do a bit of research, you very quickly figure it out. Um, in, if, you, if you look at the other side of the coin, you know, if you're investing in slightly bigger companies uh, or, or you know, near production companies. So, I mean, we work with a lot of private equity funds and 
couple of them have been smart enough to figure out that the site-based leadership DD is almost as important as the executive leadership DD. So we're working with some of them on, on, on DD of um, you know, site-based uh, people before investment. And, and yeah, that, that's, that's a difficult one for the, for the layperson. Um, I mean, I, that's, that's very difficult because you, you can't engage stratum to, <laughs> you know, to give you this information or you can't necessarily work this out. So that's actually quite difficult. But, um, yeah. It sounds like you're saying they should buy the Resource Insider newsletter to uh, have these needs. <laughs> no. Yeah. But, well, but all jokes aside, it, it is a very complex what, what issue is, and, and it, impossible for most people. What to, it is. But, you, I mean, you're joking about it, but that, that's spot on. Like, you know, from, from dealing with the right, you know, GM to the right headhunter to the right, um, you know, investment specialist like you. I mean, there's a reason, you know, people who are professionals... Are professionals, and you know they they're normally priced appropriately and in demand appropriately for that exact reason. Because people that are successful that use them become more successful. So align yourself with experts. I mean, it's as simple as that in all walks of life, and it takes a bit of investment, but the ROI is substantial. Will, I don't think we're going to find a better place to leave it than that. So thank you very much for having me to your office today and taking the time to chat. Any last thoughts or comments to our readers? Anything they should, or rather our listeners, or anything they should check out to learn more about Stratum or yourself, what you guys are doing? Um, oh, look, Jamie, thanks firstly for the opportunity. I, I enjoyed it. I, I was a bit worried that uh, people have to listen to a head under talk for an hour, but it, it went by really quickly with your guidance, so thank you. Um, you know, I'd, I'd invite any of our listeners to visit our website uh, um, www.stratum-int.com and go to the thought leadership section and download you know seven years of original research on issues of salary demographics FIFO behavioral profiling uh, you know all of it done in-house through you know kind participation of hundreds if not thousands of mining leaders so that would be my my parting comments and if anyone's interested in anything else they can drop us a line Awesome, and I'm gonna I'm gonna link to all those things in the show notes for this on our website at capitalistexploits.at. And everyone, thanks for listening, and until next time, thanks a lot, Will. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.